you know, one of the things I wrote about in 2016 that I still think has not been really addressed um, in Black Lives Matter uh, is the lack of bigger coalitions and organizations that create the space for democratic debate and input about what the movement is, where it's going, where it wants to go, but even more importantly, what what are our different kinds of visions for how to do that? And there are different visions and all movements produce multiple ideas about what should be done um, and how to do it. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Welcome. Uh, Thank you for joining us today. My name is Michelle Alexander. I am a visiting professor at Union Theological Seminary, and I'm thrilled to be hosting this dialogue with Professor Kianga Yamahata-Taylor. We'll be talking about our fantastic book, From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation, and exploring her assessment of the current state of Black activism and politics and potential pathways to our collective liberation. We'll have a dialogue for about 45 minutes and then take some questions from the audience. So please put any questions that you have directly into the chat. Before I jump into our dialogue, though, I want to express my gratitude to the sponsor of this event, Haymarket Books. As many of you may already know, Haymarket Books is a vital contributor to social justice movements in the United States and around the world by publishing some of the best political, social, cultural, and economic critique analysis in history from some of the most insightful thinkers in the world. Haymarket is best known for publishing the works of people like Angela Davis, Arendi Roy, and Naomi Klein, but there are so many phenomenal authors published by Haymarket, some of whom may not be so well known, but whose work is essential to understanding our past, present, and possibilities for the future. If you are looking to begin or deepen your political education, Haymarket Books has much to offer you. I encourage you to check out their website, donate, join the Haymarket Book Club, and or subscribe to their YouTube channel. We need independent publishers like Haymarket, um, perhaps now more than ever. So now let me properly introduce our guest, um, Kianga Yamahata-Taylor. Kianga is one of my favorite political theorists and one of the people whose perspective on Black politics activism, movement building, as well as neoliberalism and racial capitalism that I 
value most. But I'm hardly alone in treasuring her deep insights and sharp analyses. Uh, King Kianga is a professor in the Department of African American Studies at Princeton University and a writer at The New Yorker. She's also the author of a number of books, including Race for Profit, How Banks and the Real Estate Industry Undermine Black Home Ownership, which was long listed for a National Book Award for nonfiction and a 2020 finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for History. And she is the author of How We Get Free, Black Feminism, and the Kambahi River Collective, which won the Lambda, Lambda Literary Award for LGBTQ nonfiction in 2018. But the book of hers that we're gathered here to talk about today, it's like I said, Black Lives Matter, From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation, which was originally published in 2016. An updated edition has just been released. In the words of Angela Davis on the back of the book, Quote, from Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation is the text that can guide us toward an intelligent engagement, intelligent engagement with structural racism and efficacious paths of resistance. Cornell West, for his part, says, quote, this brilliant book is the best analysis we have of the Black Lives Matter moment in the long struggle for freedom in America. Kianga has emerged as the most sophisticated and courageous radical intellectual of her generation. Well, that's high praise and well-deserved, Kianga. Thank you so much for being here. It's really good. Thank to you. Hear. Thank you for taking the time uh, to talk about this book. This it's my first book. It's a book that I actually come back to um, time and time again, especially um, in the, the the last year when uh, the Black Lives Matter movement kind of reemerged uh, yeah. in even more powerful capacity. Yeah, well, I want to talk about that. Exactly. And I'd I'd like to begin by exploring whether the events of the past four years have changed any of your thinking from the original edition of the book. When you first published this book, you know, Obama was just concluding his second term. Only three years had passed since George Zimmerman was acquitted of murdering Trayvon Martin, which was when the hashtag Black Lives Matter first went viral. And only two years had passed since Ferguson, Missouri, erupted in protests following the police killing of Michael Brown. And as we all know, waves of protests followed uh, as a seemingly endless stream of viral videos of police killings filled social media feeds. It was a time of publicly shared grief and tragedy, as well as rising rebelliousness. Um, Mm. There was a growing refusal, you know, particularly among young people to accept the same tired excuses and justifications from politicians, including those offered by our first black president. So much has changed since then and much has remained the same. And so what I'd really like to do is jump ahead to what has or hasn't changed in your thinking since then. But I think it'd be wise for us to slow down and reflect on 2016 before leaping ahead to 2021. So I want to go back to when you first published the book. Um, You know, in the introduction, you write that one of your goals was to explore why the movement marching under the banner of Black Lives Matter emerged under the nation's first black president. You know, police brutality wasn't new. It existed in some forms since the abolition of slavery. So, you know, why did a radical black movement against police brutality erupt during Obama's administration? (laughs) 
And you begin your book with that question. And I'm curious to hear a bit about your motivation. You know, can you say a bit about what originally inspired you to write the book? Who was the audience you were trying to reach and why? And what core questions did you aim to answer for yourself and others? Um, those are those are great questions. I think just thinking back um, to that time, uh, you know, I think when Black Lives Matter, um, when Ferguson erupted, really, it was kind of things had been building, um, you know, over over some period of, of time that happened to coincide with um, Obama's presidency. And so some of this, you know, I thought about it from my own experience and, and perspective, um, which was, you know, I'm, I'm probably among, you know, some of the people I know extremely cynical about uh, elected officials. And, you know, I watched very closely uh, Obama's campaign. And, you know, I, it's, I didn't have these huge illusions that um, his campaign was going to be something, uh, or his presidency would ultimately be something that it wasn't. But I do think that, um, Coming out of the horror show of the the Bush administration, where the economy crashed, you know, he led the nation into uh, two illegal wars that uh, were extremely costly in both terms of money and human life. And then, you know, his administration casually sat by while New Orleans drowned and black people in that city were described as refugees and put on planes and buses and sent away. And so we all had some expectation um, that things would be different. And, you know, Obama ran a campaign that really tapped into that, that attempted to connect his candidacy to the civil rights movement, um, that, uh, you know, tried to affiliate his uh, campaign uh, with um, other kind of social movements in history. I remember being at a bar with some people at during the primary season when he was running against Hillary Clinton. Um, and, you know, he won the primary. And so a bunch of us were sitting in the bar and his speech was just like nothing you'd heard from a mainstream uh, political candidate. He's talking about the abolitionists movement. He's talking about sit-down strikes in Flint, uh, Stonewall Rebellion. Yes, we can, right? Like his campaign was a part of that. And so even though, um, you know, many of us were cynical, we still expected some things to be different. I remember on, I was in Chicago, I lived in Chicago, and I was in Chicago the night he, um, the 91 in uh, November 2008. And, you know, it really was like nothing I'd ever seen before, both in terms of just thousands of black and white people. I mean, Chicago is one of the most segregated cities uh, in, in, the, in the country. And in, you know, downtown Chicago, black and white people hugging each other, running through the streets, excited, you know. And before he's inaugurated, Oscar Grant, 
murdered, you know, by um, transit police on the uh, platform of a commuter rail train in Oakland, California. And really, that was an inauguration um, of many things. It was video uh, on people's cell phones, um, and the police would get away with it. It provoked enormous protest uh, throughout the, the Bay Area. And there were these sorts of, of things that began to happen uh, through uh, Obama's presidency um, that began to communicate continuity, not change. Um, and so it, what I was trying to really understand uh, with the book is how the disappointment with his administration's failure to act um, helped to catalyze this movement, that young Black people voted for Obama like they had never voted for anyone before, that people believed him. Um, not that he was a magician and that he would come and turn uh, the United States into some racial paradise or any of the idiocy that the mainstream media was talking about that we were entering into a post-racial nation. But people did think, I, I, I believe, that in September of 2011, for example, when Troy Davis, a Black man wrongfully convicted on Georgia's death row, um, was facing execution, that he would say something, that he would do something. Um, that is why young Black people voted for him. And so you've got hundreds of Black students from Howard marching through the streets of D.C., marching to the steps of the Supreme Court, um, desperately wanting their president, right, their president to come out and say something uh, about this. We don't want to hear about jurisdiction. We don't want to hear about federalism. We don't want to hear about what you can't do. Your campaign slogan was, yes, we can, right? And he said nothing. And Troy Davis was executed. And the next day, he sent his spokesperson, Jay Carney, out to say that this was a state's rights matter. And so it was that kind of thing, which meant, I think, for young Black people in particular, that there was no protection from the most powerful seat in this country, um, that if they wanted to stop this kind of relentless police harassment, brutality, uh, what was uncovered in Ferguson, uh, kleptocracy, you know, the, the city uh, officials actually seeing Black people um, as, uh, as a coffer uh, to draw from, uh, to, you know, create a budget line for, uh, for the town itself. Um, that it would be upon them uh, to do something. And I thought that that was particular to Obama's administration. I don't know if that, if it would have been the same reaction with uh, another either typical Republican uh, or a typical uh, white Democrat that, you know, you have extremely low expectations for, um, uh, that it would have provoked that uh, reaction. But when you run on, you know, change uh, doesn't uh, come from Washington, it comes to Washington. When you run on, you know, we are the, the, uh, the hope or whatever that we've been waiting for, yes, we can, then there's an expectation that 
you will act in the face of wanton injustice. Um, and that if you don't, then maybe we have hit the limits of what this system can offer us in terms of protection. And maybe we need to do something for ourselves. So that was the kind of big overarching experience that was both intellectual. I remember, I mean, it's so, you know, I had a, a doctor's appointment the morning that he was giving his um, inauguration speech in January. And I, you know, I was coming back, I was listening to half of it on the, on the radio. And at some point I just pulled over to listen to this speech, you know, the most cynical person in the world about like what this person can do. And it was just so fucking disappointing. You know, it was so disappointing. And so I think that's part of what you see in the ferocity of those protests. That is the anger, the exasperation that boiled over in Ferguson. It's the anger, the exasperation, the the disbelief in Baltimore, you know, like several months later, nine months later, that here we have a black city, a black you know, uh, a, a black mayor, a hundred, you know, 40 miles from the black president, from the black attorney general. We got black people in power everywhere. And then you have three black cops and three white cops pick up this black kid and, you know, drive him around without a seatbelt, break his neck and kill him. You know, one of the themes that's most striking in your book is that it's impossible to understand black politics and activism in America today, um, particularly with respect to the Obama era, without understanding the nature of the class divide that exists within black communities, um, you know, in mainstream discourse, particularly within the mainstream media, when class is discussed explicitly, it's usually in the context of explaining or defending the angry white men who voted for Trump or the challenges the Democratic Party has faced in trying to appeal to less educated working class whites. But a key insight in your book is that class divisions um, are driving race politics, we're driving those protests um, to a large degree. And you write that black economic elites have a vested interest in the notion of colorblindness and the myth that the U.S. is basically a meritocracy and the notion that the election of Barack Obama shows that we have overcome or are overcoming. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about the role of class um, in black politics and activism and how the gap between the rich and poor is even more pronounced among blacks than whites and why that matters and thinking about protest and politics then and and today. Yeah, I, absolutely. And the events in, in Ferguson, I mean, there are many events that crystallize this, but when you, you think about Ferguson and the way that, for example, the Congressional Black Caucus mobilized itself to go to Ferguson, um, and their main objective was voter registration, right? That this is, we got to get people registered and we have to vote, and, and that's the most important uh, thing. And, you know, people try to characterize the clash and the conflict um, between young activists uh, who were on the street and 
you know, they booed Jesse Jackson when he spoke. Uh, they there was sort of, you know, deep hostilities between uh, these young activists and Al Sharpton. Um, and, you know, people try to con- convey that as a, a kind of generational um, split. And clearly there, you know, there was some of that where uh, young, younger people, you know, are more willing to, to take risks in their protest. Um, uh, older people who have suffered uh, all sorts of political defeats um, may draw more conservative conclusions about what we need to do um, in order to, uh, you know, advance this particular cause. But um, another feature of it uh, was a kind of class division um, between those who had some problems with governance and some problems with the status quo, but for the most part um, had reconciled and found ways to uh, make the status quo work for them. And then a majority of uh, poor and working class Black people uh, for whom the status quo uh, was quite deadly. And Mike Brown um, was certainly a symbol of that. And then when you get to Baltimore, um, I think there is a much more hard and ingrained division that we see all over the country now, whether it is in Washington, D.C., uh, Chicago, um, New Orleans. I mean, there the are many places that have black elected leaderships that have black mayors um, whom, for whom, uh, you know, beyond the issue of race, they really have very little in common uh, with the majority black population of the, the majority of black people uh, who are in their cities. And so in a place like um, Baltimore, uh, where conditions had deteriorated in part because you had, a, a, you know, approach to governing um, that was really interested in attracting business with low, you know, promises of, of low taxes, of cutting budgets for social services that uh, black people who were disproportionately living in poverty uh, were reliant upon. And this is a, a governing model that was not just popular in Baltimore, it's popular across the United States, that really put uh, young black working class people um, at odds with a black political uh, leadership and a black, uh, uh, really a black elite um, in that city. And I think that those uh, tensions um, were amplified uh, during the Obama administration. And for me, it, it is one of the differences um, that uh, exist when you have the reemergence of Black Lives Matter um, uh, last summer, where then you have all of these Black uh, officials who are paraded around uh, as representatives of, of Black America um, and who are able to maintain that because Trump is racist and uh, makes racist, disparaging comments about Black elected officials. Uh, Elijah Mo, uh, uh, Cummings, who was a, a congressional representative um, for Baltimore, uh, was in a dispute with Trump. Uh, and Trump went on to Twitter and described Baltimore as a rat-infested place that no human being would want to live in. I mean, it was just, you know, there's no codes, there's no innuendo, it's just full-throated uh, racism. And so it changes the dynamic then uh, of the, the the tensions that were 
exposed and on the surface during the Obama administration get buried under this uh, attack and defense of racist attacks um, that call for a kind of racial solidarity, those class tensions become muted once again. So, you know, yeah, let's move forward to to 2020 or, you know, to the Trump administration. Um, you know, I can't help but ask, does the Trump experience change your view or thinking at all from the original edition? And I guess what I'm really wondering is it better or worse in your view to have a deeply flawed president like Obama who invited activists into the White House and gave them a seat at the table, but who offered little in terms of structural change or a racist wannabe dictator like Trump? You know, what is the difference between having someone who professes to care about racial justice and who does <laughs> and someone who makes plain he doesn't give a damn? So I think that instead of thinking about it as as better um, or worse, that it's to me it's better to look at the relationship between the two, how one helped to create the atmosphere uh, of the other. Um, and so, I, you know, what I mean by that is I think that uh, part of the reason why Hillary Clinton had uh, a low black turnout relative to uh, other years. I mean, in 2016, it was the uh, lowest black turnout for a presidential election in 20 years. Um, and so we can't divorce that from those raised and then dashed expectations that came with the Obama administration. And the failure for the federal government to assert itself in any kind of meaningful way, at least meaningful to uh, the thousands of, tens of thousands of young Black people who saw themselves aligned um, with the movement, um, is probably a big reason for that. But it's not the only reason for that. I think also when you combine that kind of uh, neglect of the, the most pertinent kind of immediate social issue Within eight years of economic stagnation or just standing still, while you see, you know, the big recoveries for Wall Street, you see the big recoveries for the banks. Um, you know, I think Obama admitted himself that 95% of the recovery from the 2008 uh, financial crisis went to the top uh, 1%, 2% um, of the country that that also contributed to an atmosphere um, where people did not feel compelled to come out uh, and vote, as well as the fact that, you know, there was a sense that um, the Clinton as the, the candidate um, was a scenario that people had already seen before, uh, had already experienced before, um, and weren't particularly compelled about that either. And so I think that those are, you know, part of a kind of what I would describe as a, a set of structural explanations that contribute uh, to the um, uh, to the Trump phenomenon that make it difficult to kind of separate out what happened uh, during the Obama years from uh, what then ends up uh, with Trump. Now, to be sure, the the Trump 
presidency uh, was disastrous on, on many different levels. I mean, Trump ran in part um, on race baiting Black Lives Matter, on putting Black Lives Matter in the crosshairs, on you know aligning himself with with police, uh, on egging on police brutality, uh, and so that created you know an atmosphere of fear and intimidation uh, for BLM activists um, and for people who dared to speak out about racism in connection. Uh, to his administration. I know that six months into uh, his administration, I gave a talk where I, you know, (laughs) I gave a 20 minute talk. I spent 19 seconds talking about Trump as a racist, sexist megalomaniac, something that if you said now, it's like Tuesday, you know, and I was inundated with death threats and Fox News played the clip over and over and over again on a holiday weekend. I mean, this was the kind of hothouse atmosphere of violence and intimidation, in addition to then the kind of, you know, theft from the bottom, given away to the top, the criminal incompetence uh, around the handling of the the pandemic that all then exploded um, uh, uh, last summer. Um, and so I think that, you know, the, there are important differences when you have a president, as you uh, pointed out, who's willing to open up the doors, to put some activists on a police commission, uh, to really engage in this, um, what I would call the theater of, of reform that, that looks very busy, uh, that looks very concerned with very little actually happening. Um, that is is changing anything. Uh, that's different from the kind of rank hostility, from the threats to use the military uh, to put down political uh, to put down political protests. Um, and yet, you know, I think that in many ways the the movement um, has grown uh, and developed in sophisticated ways coming out of. Uh, last summer, both in terms of building networks of solidarity, of uh, getting beyond um, the the kind of reforms that were at the heart uh, of the movement in 2014 and 15, which was focused on body cameras um, and commission studies to defund the police, uh, which people in the Democratic Party establishment mock and and talk about as as horrible, but which has actually opened up a very important discussion in this country about how police are funded versus other public services, whether that is the best way to deal with issues of violence um, in in communities. And so, you know, I don't, it's not one period versus the other. It's how these things have built and developed over, uh, over really probably the last eight or nine years. So what would you say are the primary lessons that have been learned from experience during the Obama and Trump years? You know, it's I see it as no small irony that after the last largest racial justice protests in world history against police violence, progressives elected as president, a white man who is a champion of the 90s crime bills and legislation and 
contributed massive amounts of funding to police and prisons and the rise of mass incarceration, and that we also elected as vice president a black woman of Jamaican and Indian descent who was a career prosecutor before being elected to the Senate and then vice president. And there's also been the surge of black electoral victories in New York State and elsewhere, you know, which is being heralded as great progress. And I wonder kind of what do you make of this moment in which black people are achieving significant electoral gains? Um, and what are the lessons do you think that have been learned and incorporated into movement work and activism? Um, you know, decades ago, MLK warned that black people would be elected to high places in large numbers, but that didn't necessarily mean that meaningful change would occur. So what's your assessment of the growth that has or hasn't taken place um, in our movements in relationship to representational politics mm -hmm. and um, electoral politics. One thing I, I think is interesting about um, Biden and Kamala Harris is um, in spite of themselves and despite their records, um, they have been forced to at least uh, articulate uh, completely different politics, different, certainly different from the platforms that, uh, that they ran on. Um, and I think that that is a, a testament to, um, the power of social movements. Uh, I think, you know, there are certainly, um, there are limits to that, but I do think that that is worth, uh, acknowledging. I mean, you know, Joe Biden ran on not changing anything and just, you know, maintaining the status quo. And, that you know, that's not left wing rhetoric. I mean, that's what he ran on, that, you know, we're not going to make big changes here. We're just going to stop the, the craziness of the, the Trump administration. Um, and, you know, Kamala Harris was out very early um, in the Democratic uh, Party uh, primaries because she had no traction. Um, because no one believed anything that she had to say. I mean, she just seemed like a uh, fairly typical, uh, what would you like for me to say? And that is what my campaign focus will be. Um, and the candidate that, you know, many people uh, uh, wanted and that had great um, momentum until the end was Bernie Sanders. And then, you know, I think that um, Sanders ran into the the inadequacies of his own uh, campaign over the last, over two, 2016 and uh, 2020 in terms of really being able to um, not just his rhetoric changed uh, significantly, um, but, you know, you need bases, you need inroads, you need um, much more of a stable uh, presence combined with the onset of a pandemic. You know, people forget that, that this was all unfolding. Um, at the same time, and the, the question lingering in the back um, was, you know, do we really want to uh, entrust this to an inexperienced person when we already have that um, in the White House who seems to be fumbling uh, this issue of the pandemic already? Um, so I think from where those 
Joe Biden and Kamala Harris began as on the most conservative end um, of the the pool of Democratic Party candidates uh, to where they ended up rhetorically, because uh, I don't believe that it, the some of the programs and spending that have been championed um, are representative of uh, what Joe Biden, for example, who was a deficit hawk throughout the 1980s, uh, believes for governing. But I think that they recognize a, an extreme problem, which is that if you don't engage the base in a serious way um, with a, a clear program around massive spending in the aftermath of the worst set of crises in American history, then not only will people not come out and vote, but it will really be the end of the Democratic Party. Like people are not going uh, to come out and vote for nothing when you have riots in the street, when you have the largest protest movement um, in American history. And so, you know, they started making promises and they've started spending. The problem now, of course, is that this is all defensive spending. None of this is permanent. There have been, you know, there, there haven't been permanent programs uh, uh, that have been created uh, out of this. So all of the talk about, you know, the U.S. government is back, big government is back, you know, is, is, very, uh, is very premature. Um, I think for the movement in terms of uh, some of the lessons that I've thought about and, and written about, um, are, I, you know, one of the things I wrote about in 2016 that I still think has not been really addressed, um, in Black Lives Matter, uh, is really the lack of organization, um, that, I mean, there are lots of little organizations, but, uh, the, the lack of bigger coalitions and organizations that create the space for democratic debate and input about what the movement is, where it's going, where it wants to go, but even more importantly, what what are our different kinds of visions for how to do that? And there are different visions, and all movements produce multiple ideas about what should be done um, and how to do it. And in this movement, those multiple ideas exist, but there have rarely been spaces where um, people can engage each other outside of social media um, or outside of, you know, tightly curated spaces uh, that, you know, are created by some conveners, but only, you know, for the sake of kind of reinforcing uh, the ideas that they began with, not to actually engage in any kind of um, meaningful democratic uh, debate. And so, you know, I still believe that this is a movement um, that yearns for democracy, uh, that yearns for uh, political accountability. People talk about the movement being leaderless and, you know, it sounds good, but there are always leaders. The question is not, are there leaders? The question is, who are those leaders uh, accountable uh, to? Um, and those are those are political issues that um, have been, I think, have gone unresolved, and that 
um, I think represent the lack of engagement on those issues represents a, a problem because it means that there's no place to uh, discuss, debate, ways to pressure this administration for more than emergency spending, more than emergency funding, but fundamental programs, a fundamentally different uh, uh, approach to dealing with uh, uh, these issues, whatever they may be, jobs, pandemic, policing. And we don't have that. And so what I've written before is the, the way that the right has taken over the Republican Party. And so they have a vessel to shape public opinion about what they think. I mean, you can see how quickly you go from the the nonsensical idiocy about critical race theory to that's all that's that's all they talk about. That is an effective use of organization. We don't have that on our side. Well, some would argue that, you know, creating a new political party would be the vehicle for, you know, creating some uh, system of uh, some space for organization and structure and potentially funding. Um, but there's, you know, myriad challenges in trying yeah. to go from where we are to launching a new, although, you know, the um, Working Families Party and others are trying to wrestle with those questions and find paths forward in that direction. Although, you know, that party um, or the Green Party are not explicitly focused on black issues um, and, um, you know, to varying degrees have racial justice as a focus. But I also assume that when you talk about the need for greater organization, um, you aren't talking about a need for nonprofit organizations that are funded by foundations that themselves have been kind of very much complicit in various ways um, with the uh, supporting of kind of billionaire philanthropy solutions yeah. to um, the problems of racial capitalism. And so I'm curious, like what you envision when you talk about the need for greater organization, what would that look like in your mind, ideally, um, if if it's not a new political party or if it's not the kind of organizations that, you know, have been funded quite well as of late <laughs> um, by the major foundations, what what does it look like in your mind? I, I think about it on two different kinds of, of levels. One is um, uh, literally coalitions. So we have existing organizations um, in Black Lives Matter. Is there a way for groups of groups of those organizations uh, to be able to meet together, to talk about their experiences together, to be able to generalize from their experiences from, uh, you know, uh, South Bend, Indiana, to Atlanta, Georgia, to LA, to Dallas, Texas? What can we learn from our different uh, uh, experiences? And then to have these questions out about what is this movement? What do we think the movement should be? What are the things that, that we should be fighting for? What are the disputes around that? What are the disagreements uh, around that? Such as, uh, do we support as a demand defunding the police? Does that mean that you need to be a prison abolitionist 
to do that. What do we think of this? You know, these people have really different ideas and, and good ideas and bad ideas. And there's just very little uh, uh, political um, comradely uh, conversation about those things where then we can come to some mutual decisions or discuss, you know, determinations about what that means. Even if the determination is we probably can't work together on this particular issue. Maybe we can work together on something else. So that's one kind of uh, uh, coalition-like structure that doesn't need C3 status uh, or funding, um, that needs the capacity of people to be able to get together um, and to make some decisions uh, about decision-making, about uh, uh how do we include in a democratic way the voices and perspectives of the many people who contribute uh, to this movement? Um, and then another scale is one of political party. Um, you know, I think that the long reach of the uh, foundations and funders is real. Um, and I think that that doesn't mean that uh, we have to abandon that source of, of money, um, because in one sense, you know, we can't bake sale our way uh, into the resources that are necessary uh, to really reach the, the kinds of, uh, to have the kinds of reach uh, that we need to be effective. But it does mean that structurally, and I write about this in this last uh, chapter, uh, that structurally um, we can create ways uh, to deal with the influence of, of funders and philanthropy. Um, and that is really where uh, leaning in on democracy um, is important, where we don't have situations where uh, the, we have this professionalization of activism where the staffers or the people uh, who are drawing an income from this work are the ones who make the sole determinations or the ones who are, are the most influential making the ultimate uh, decisions, but that we create within um, our structures uh, democratic oversight, that we get back to voting um, on things, that we get to you know, have discussions and, and make collective decisions uh, about things. I don't think that those are, um, that that's utopian or that that is impossible, but it must be intentional. It, it can't just happen um, because, you know, someone thinks that it's a good idea. It has to be woven into our uh, a practice of, uh, of organizing. Um, and, you know, I think the party question uh, is one that we can't avoid any longer. I mean, you know, people constantly uh, avoid this question and every election is too consequential to lose, right? We can't, and the, the Democrats rely on this, uh, that the Republicans are the Neanderthals at the gates and it means that we can't lose, so we have to close ranks around whatever shitty Democrat uh, is put in front of us. And that is a dynamic um, that we've been locked in. And, you know, I think part of the reason that we will stay locked in it uh, is if we continue to be dispersed, diffuse, 
no places to argue and debate these political questions about what our movement is and how we can move from reactive protest, mass protests, as important as they are, to really something different that challenges uh, the, the political uh, structures that actually seeks to create um, an alternative. It strikes me that one of the many things that would need to be explored, discussed, debated um, is the extent to which capitalism becomes mm -hmm. central to the work of anti-racist activists, organizers, movement builders. And, you know, one of the great strengths and contributions of your book is that it sh doesn't shy away from mm -hmm that question and addressing the role of capitalism in creating and maintaining racial inequality. And at one point in the book, you suggest that, you know, we ask ourselves, can conditions created by institutional racism ever be transformed within the capitalist order? And I wonder how you might respond to you know, activists or perhaps people who are new to the movement mm -hmm. um, who think that challenging capitalism <laughs> um, is too tall in order and that kind of striving for racial equity within the system um, is a big enough <laughs> uh, ring to reach for and um, mm -hmm. that they don't necessarily even know what it means to challenge capitalism or what that would even look like? How would you respond to someone who's kind of wondering, you know, why is it really necessary for us to challenge um, the capitalist order um, in order to undo institutional racism? I think part of that is understanding what structural racism means. Um, and so much of the uh, discussion, especially in the last year with the popularity of, you know, books like White Fragility. Um, I think Ibram Kendi's book is, is different, but it still comes back to changing public policy um, as the kind of main point of emphasis. Uh, Robin D'Angelo, who wrote White Fragility, has a new book uh, out uh, that is a critique of what she describes as uh, nice racism, racism from progressive people. Um, and, you know, whatever you think about that, none of these are actually getting to what structural capitalism um, means. And so for me, that means uh, centrally looking at the way that capitalism creates um, what Marxists sometimes refer to uh, as false scarcity. Um, and what is false scarcity? Uh, it means, you know, we have these hand-wringing discussions about there's not enough affordable housing. Well, how can there not be enough affordable housing? This is the richest country in the history of humanity. This is a country that spends almost $1 trillion uh, a year on its defense budget. Of course, there's enough resources uh, to create enough sound, quality, safe and sound housing for every single person. Uh, in this country, but there's not enough. And so it's the scarcity of the things that we need from jobs to education, to housing, to healthcare, that helps to create an atmosphere 
where ordinary people must compete with each other in order to secure these things. And in that atmosphere of competition, the notion of undeserving people, of people who should have access to these things versus people who shouldn't have access to these things is really part of a fertile environment where uh, racism uh, can take hold. So that, that's one part of it. The other part of it uh, is much more crass, uh, which is the way that racism um, is profitable, right? When Newsday does, you know, has a big, it's a, week, a daily in Long Island, has this big expose. They've done a three-year undercover uh, um, uh, story about racism among real realtors. So realtors who are steering black people to one section of Long Island, steering Latinos to another section, steering white people to another sec- to another section. Are they just doing this because they haven't been to Robin D'Angelo's workshop on you know racism? Or is there something greater than the individual attitudes and outlooks of the people involved, which, by the way, include not just white real estate agents, but black real estate agents and South Asian real estate agents and Latino real estate agents as well? Well, the preservation of the housing market as it stands means that you know that you steer people to the, the white people to the white neighborhood and exclusive white housing remains extremely expensive that black people introduced into uh, white neighborhoods brings the pro- value of that property down uh, which has a cascading effect in the housing economy and so when Wells Fargo refers to black people in Baltimore as mud people as loans given to black people as ghetto loans. Like this is all part of a political economy built on racism that is profitable. And so these are the structural barriers to the liberal idea of just racial equality. This is why it's so hard, not because we haven't workshopped out all of the the tensions that not enough people know the history, of course, that would help. It would help that if, you know, every time something happens in this country, there's not like some revelation that, oh, there's a, a long history and blah, blah, blah. You know, it would, it, historical knowledge would help, which is why I think the Juneteenth holiday is actually an important milestone. But ignorance alone is not why we continue to see iterations of the same problem for 156 years since slavery ended. It is because it is to the benefit of some people, like some people greatly benefit. We can look at, you know, white median income in this country is $70,000. For black people, it's $53,000. Okay, so that's some benefit, great. But if we really look at the top of our society, well, we've got white men going to the moon or into outer space because they're bored, then we're talking about much greater spoils that are being derived um, from racism and inequality at Amazon, for example. You know, 
And so that's the problem with just limiting our scope to, you know, I mean, every, if you think about it, and I'll just end on this, every radical began as a liberal, you know, with the rare, very rare exception of some red diaper baby somewhere, most radicals begin as liberals. And if most of those people had just, you know, if we'd achieved some racial equality, then they would have stayed liberals. But the reason why people come to the conclusion that, wow, this is much bigger. We, you know, we can't actually just cherry pick this or that thing with the system is because they continue to run into the absolute intractability of the, the, the status quo. Now, of course, you can have some change and there are some reforms, some of which are incredibly um, important. The civil rights movement and, you know, ending Jim Crow and securing the right to vote. But we can also see that those pressures to divide, to steal basic rights from people always come back because the system is still intact. And so we thought we secured the right to vote in 1965 with the Voting Rights Act. And here we are, you know, fighting over Jim Crow-like uh, ordinances to really keep Black people from being able to vote in the 21st century. And so that's the, the lesson. That's part of what radicalizes people is the resilience of capitalism, that even when reforms are made, that there is a pressure to go back, to revert back to the old ways, uh, that reforms come through massive pressure. And as soon as that massive pressure disappears, there's an immediate attempt to refill the vacuum with the reactionary old ways that we all just struggle to get rid of in the first place. And that's why people radicalize and, and come to the conclusion, not just me, you know, but mi many people that this well, that's is been true for me, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I can attest to that, that journey. Yeah. My own. Um, well, I would I I want to get to some of the questions that have been texted. I've been um, or put in the chat and okay. have now been texted to me, but I have one more question that I can't. Sure. And I will speak succinctly and quickly. No, you, you've been phenomenal. So um, the title of your book is from Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. You know, it's not from Black Lives Matter to racial equity or <laughs> racial equality. <laughs> so your, your explicit goal is liberation. And I'm wondering, what liberation means to you? Sure. How do you define it? And do you believe black liberation is possible in the United States? You've mentioned a couple of times that you don't think certain ideas are utopian. And so, you know, it, it seems that you push back against, you know, ideas that are labeled as utopian or unachievable. And I'm curious what liberation means to you and whether you believe black liberation is possible in the United States. So I actually thought a lot about this um, when when I was writing the book. And um, for me, it, it really came down to self-determination. Um, can we make decisions uh, free of economic coercion, right? Can we make decisions 
um, that are truly free. Uh, and that to me is what liberation uh, would be. And I know that it's not something that black people can achieve alone, you know? Um, and so I, you know, I write about this, that black liberation is bound up uh, with human liberation. I mean, on a purely mathematical uh, basis, you know, black people are drift between 13 and 14 percent um, of the population. And, you know, we can't get free alone. And so, um, so this is also about really trying to examine the connections between the subjugation of black people and how that relates to uh, a wider web of subjugation um, of other people as well and in our uh, society. And that includes white people too. It includes ordinary white people that I think, um, of course, is easy to overlook uh, and to ignore, um, but that we have to take seriously when, you know, the life expectancy of ordinary white people has gone into decline because of alcoholism, suicide, and opioid addiction, um, you know, it means that there's something wrong in this country for those people as well. And what is a politics that can um, understand that? And not in a way that subsumes the liberation of Black people to that, um, but sees these as, as united, as a part of the same problem. They are distinct, they are different, but they are a part of the same problem, which is a society that is organized around the profiteering of a small clique to the detriment of everyone else. You can't have billionaires flying in space without immense poverty and misery here on earth, right? I mean, Amazon, why is Bezos so fabulously rich? Because he treats his workers like shit. And so that's, that's uh, a problem that unites many people. Now, the, the politics of, of actually being able to uh, win, um, not just, you know, white people who have racist ideas, but Black people who have xenophobic ideas and racist ideas about other people. And this is what that competition over what we are told there is not enough of does. It sets people uh, against each other. Um, and that's, you know, that's part of the problem. And that's part of what has to be unlocked. Do I think Black liberation, human liberation is possible in the United States? I do not as the United States is currently configured. These are problems that we can't vote our way in or out of. Um, these are not problems that are on the ballot, right? We don't get to vote on the massive redistribution of wealth and resources um, in this country. And so it really requires uh, a different kind uh, of society where, uh, you know, there's the democratic input of all of us about 
what our society should be and what it should look like. And, you know, that that can't happen in the way that this country exists now. Um, and so to that extent, what what I'm talking about is really a revolutionary transformation um, of the United States. Is it possible? I don't know if it's possible, but I don't know what else to do um, in terms of what I spend my time thinking about, talking about, writing about, and doing that with other people. It might not work. You know, I don't know. It might not work, but I know that this doesn't work. And this is, this is intolerable. I mean, it, it, it's intolerable on many levels. And then there's like, the planet is on fire, <laughs> you know, like it, these things, there's, there's a kind of liberal, you know, idea sometimes that things will just kind of, we have problems, but it'll just, you know, they'll just keep going on the way they are. But the way they are is 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 not is not possible, and you know, it feels it feels even more unwieldy after last summer after Trump. It feels like no, the status quo cannot continue uh, to hold. You know, you have raving fascist white supremacists who are not well. Let's just bide our time you know, but who want to strip us of our right to vote, imprison us and do God knows what else. So there's a little bit of (laughs) existential urgency to kind of, you know, figure it out, but, you know, we got to figure it out. But I think most people that, you know, not most people, but a growing number of people, you know, I think recognize that, the status quo as it currently exists yes. is not working. Well, let me offer just a couple of questions here okay. um, that have been shared with me. Um, one is, to what extent is the contemporary Black struggle an international one in solidarity with liberation movements abroad and in particular with the victims of U.S. foreign policy? It should be international, whether it is, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. Um, I certainly think that a a feature of the black movement um, earlier, right, in the 1960s, uh, of course, was much um, more connected to international movements. Now, that's, that's not just because of the particular consciousness of uh, the people who were organizing or at the helm of those organizations and, and social movements. It was also in correspondence with the existence of, you know, a third world revolutionary left that also understood um, uh, the importance of, of internationalism, particularly with the black movement um, in the United States. Uh, and so, you know, I think with the decline, um, undermining however we want to describe it of uh, national liberation movements from, uh, from that period has come a kind of uh, less of an emphasis on uh, internationalism, uh, certainly, um, in this country and with the movement, I think that 
there are efforts and attempts to to forge uh, some of that. I know that activists and and Black Lives Matter uh, certainly have seen the Palestinian struggle um, as 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 something that they want to be connected to uh, the uh, the resistance movements in Brazil. Um, that there have been um, much more kind of efforts to connect different groups um, uh, from here uh, to, to, to groups there. But I think the kind of uh, global solidarities that we saw uh, uh, during the, the, the 60s and 1970s, that, um, that uh, those efforts don't exist in the same way. Um, but it's not just because of uh, what American activists do or don't do, but it's also has to do with the character uh, of those international struggles as well. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I've been, I was been really encouraged about the relationships that have been built and the political connections that have been made um, between kind of BLM activists and Palestinian activists and have hoped that it would begin, it would kind of plant the seeds of a more internationalist Mm -hmm. orientation, one that I myself have been kind of late to. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, um, you know, I hope, I hope we see more of that. Um, Yeah. In the months and years to come. Here's another, um, another question. Does relying on, doesn't relying on foundation funding keep us from moving in directions that are more radical, for example, defund. And I think here they're looking for sort of concrete advice about how we might, if we are seeking foundation funding, exactly what can be done to prevent, um, yeah, the watering down (laughs) of uh, the organizing and the demands themselves. And should we be, uh, you know, issuing foundation funding completely? So I I write about this, um, you know, explicitly in the book, both in um, I think it's it's chapter five on Black Lives Matter, and then in the the new kind of final um, final chapter of the book. And you know, it's I I'll just say some of what I said before, which is I don't you know some uh, foundations. Um, I think it matters which foundations. Some are more kind of micromanaging or. Uh, controlling of what you do with uh, your money than than others. Um, so that's one thing. But to me, it, it really comes down to um, creating democratic structures within your organizations that take charge and ultimately decide how those resources are going to be used above and beyond what um, the funders say. And so if if you're dealing with a funder who's like, well, no, you can't do that. You know, we need to know this person is in charge and they're the only ones in charge, whatever, then you know, it's probably a grant that you don't want. If you're trying to uh, democratize your organization and change the way 
that the decision-making process um, happens. So I think some of this means on our side being less passive uh, about this and just, you know, letting funders dictate things, um, but actively changing. And this is not something that is really... um, uh, that happens in a lot of uh, organizations that rely on these funds, um, democratic decision-making. It usually is left in the hands of uh, professional staff. And, you know, if we want to change that, we have to be not be passive about it, letting funders dictate how uh, these funds are, are allocated or spent or how our decisions uh, are made uh, and take charge and control um, of our organizations. And if you are encountering funders um, who are hostile to that, then those are funders that you don't want to deal with. So um, I'll ask two more questions, but I'm going to ask them together. Sure. Um, Because I think they're somewhat related. so the last two questions are, are there, do you have any advice on reviving groups momentum as actions and numbers wane? Mm-hmm. And then the other question is, I wonder what Kianga thinks about the strategy to create independent organizations and parties at the same time that we struggle within the democratic party and inside outside strategy. So um, these seem somewhat related in that, Sometimes actions and numbers wane in part because momentum is not being sustained um, and begins to feel either futile or people get exhausted, worn out. But um, without a clear sense of what the inside outside strategy is or whether one is even warranted and without new independent organizations and parties, it can be difficult to sustain enthusiasm for um, kind of forever protests. So um, curious how you would respond to those questions. So the, the first one I'm more familiar with, um, and meaning that it's more, to me, it's more straightforward, uh, which is that, yeah, the momentum um, around protest and and actions uh, is is it's you know it's like a human body that it has a limit, um, and you can't you know you can't just rely um, on that. With all movements, there ebbs and flows. There are times of lots of activity. Some might describe it as hyperactivity. Um, that corresponds with, you know, a kind of, like we saw last summer, an awakening um, in the general population. And it's great to ride that wave, um, but that it it is a wave. uh, And you really, to to build sustained organizations over time, you have to understand that it's a wave. And then the question is, well, what do you do uh, when the wave crashes or passes over you? Um, and there are lots of things uh, to do, you know, and it depends on what kind of organization it is that you're trying to to, to build. Is this a time to, um, you know, there's so many political questions that exist right now. Is this a time to kind of recalibrate your expectations, um, but still hold public meetings that engage with some of 
uh, these questions that provide a space for people who have similar questions, like what should we be doing right now? Um, but to do that with other people. So holding um, public meetings, is this a time to deepen our politics and our understanding of things that have happened in the world uh, previously? So should we be having um, uh, study groups? Should we be meeting with other people to think more deeply um, about some of these questions, reading books together, reading articles uh, together? Um, and then, you know, but always with the idea that the wave will come again, you know, and it might not be to the extent of 26 million people, you know, participating uh, in protests. Um, but, you know, locally, there are all sorts of smaller waves uh, around uh, different kinds of political actions um, in protest. And so how do you both relate to those that exist, but how do you also come together with some people to create the wave, right? And so sometimes you can't do that um, on the same scale, but you know, in every locality uh, across this country, there's police brutality, uh, there are issues with the criminal justice system, there's issues with, you know, that, that have been created by the pandemic around housing, we're on the precipice of an eviction crisis. There are all sorts of, of smaller local issues um, that little like local organizations can uh, dive into um, to build campaigns around, uh, while at the same time keeping, you know, paying attention uh, to your own ideas, the development of your ideas and analysis about what is happening um, in the world. So I would have some combination of having public meetings, having study groups and finding ways that you can build struggles um, on a local level with other people uh, in other kinds of organizations. Um, also the basis for uh, building coalition. Um, the second, the, the inside outside, I mean, that, that's a question. Um, that's a question that I have, you know, for a long time, you know, I would, uh, scoff, uh, quite loudly at the inside outside strategy. And to some extent I still do, but I don't know what to do. You know, I know like I'm working on a story now about India Walton, and her surprise victory in, in Buffalo, uh, New York. And, you know, they ran a, a campaign. India Walton is a democratic socialist. The DSA endorsed the campaign. It's very exciting. Um, and it's going to be really hard, you know. It's going to be really hard because you have a city council uh, there that she will have to co-govern with that is hostile for the most part and made up of, you know, people who embody all the things that she ran against. Um, and so, you know, she and the comrades that uh, organized that campaign um, are going to have really powerful enemies very quickly from the start. And so what do you, how do you, how do you deal with that? Like, what what do you do in the face of tremendous pressure? Because the answer isn't, well, you shouldn't run, right? Because it will be hard to uh, to govern. But it raises, I think, new questions that the American left is starting to try to understand and deal with in a more 
um, serious way uh, right now because you have pockets, you know, in Chicago, for example, there are, I think, five or six um, socialists who consider themselves a socialist caucus in the city council that have to deal with Lori Lightfoot, you know, on a, on a daily basis. And, um, you know, should they not run because now they're part of the establishment? No, of course they should be there. But then it's like, how do you network together? How do you be in in touch with other elected officials uh, who have a kind of common viewpoint so that you can learn lessons and generalize and and have people to think with and strategize with? Um, And then how do you, you know, what is the relationship between organizations and social movements who aren't in office, but who are now in the position of, you know, how do we pressure <laughs> these people that we see as comrades in, in struggle who are now in positions of power? Um, it's an important question that I think all too often, you know, there, there are some segments of the left that are just cavalier uh, about it and, you know, kind of blow it off. But I think that these are, um, are serious dilemmas uh, to try to um, to wrap our hands around or our heads around and, and understand. So I don't have um, I don't know. I I think it's a it's a question that I'm trying to understand in real time. Well, that is a perfect place to end. Um, I mean, I think in so many ways to acknowledge that the way forward isn't clear. And the best way, best we can do is carefully reflect on the past and try to tease out the lessons learned and generalize, as you said, to the extent possible, while also mm-hmm. understanding the specificity of the present moment circumstances. And you do that beautifully in your book. And I encourage everyone um, to run, don't walk to your nearest independent bookstore or order directly from Haymarket and and get the book. But thank you so much, Kianga, um, for your time today and also for just the incredible commitment that you've had um, to this work, um, your research, your writing, your books, your wonderful commentary in The New Yorker, and also just, yeah, your... Um, your willingness to to not just stand apart from um, the movement and study and analyze it, to but to be very much in the thick of it as well. So um, thank you, Michelle. I appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Well, um, we're signing off now, and I want to thank everyone who joined us. And um, yeah, come back soon to Haymarket. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.